Hey everybody, welcome back to Create Cast. I am your host, Chase K. I am so, so excited to be broadcasting again after such a long hiatus, but frankly, I am even more excited to welcome our first guest to the show, Mr. David Menkes. Now, David is interesting in that he sort of walks these two separate creative lives. The first is as a VFX artist, and his most recent project, at least at time of recording, is the upcoming Marvel film, Spider-Man No Way Home. The other, believe it or not, is as a chocolatier, and he and his wife, Corey, run Letterpress Chocolate here in Los Angeles, California, which is a wonderful small-batch bean-to-bar chocolate company. So David is very interesting in that, you know, we usually don't have guests that have such a sort of a disparate array of experience, so it's great to hear him talk about the ways in which those two worlds overlap or don't, or how he sort of found his way into both of these two very, very different disciplines. Uh, As always, I want to thank our guests for coming on the show, and of course, I want to thank you for listening. And if you'd like to learn more about me, your host, or the show, you can either go to my website, chasek.me, or the podcast website, createcastpod.com, or I'm on most social media at chasekmedia. So I hope you enjoy this interview. I had a great time talking with David, and I hope you love it. All right, here we go. Hey everybody, welcome to Create Cast. We have David on from Letterpress Chocolate. Uh, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. So I was really excited to talk to you. Uh, my girlfriend uh, works in the VFX industry and she met you and all of a sudden mentioned, oh yeah, one of my coworkers happens to run a chocolate factory here in Los Angeles, which was extremely exciting just because it's a, an in- a super interesting blend of of, of passions, but as well as like, Hey, it's local. We should go visit the chocolate factory. So, uh, I'd love to sort of hear from you, like the chocolate came second. So why don't we start with the VFX or, or I guess art in general, or, you know, your creative passions, like how, how did you discover that line of work? It's a good question. So, uh, I knew that I wanted to be in visual effects since I was five. Um, and it's not the typical story, you know, where you hear someone seeing like Star Wars in the theater or something like that. My experience was, um, I was sitting in the theater with my dad. I don't remember which movie it was. Uh, I was probably about five. I know I was five. And, um, before the movie started, it was a TriStar film. And I remember the Pegasus, uh, jumping over the TriStar logo and, you know, it sprouts wings and obviously it's, you know, hand animated, but, I remember sitting in the theater, looking up at the screen, like, how did they do that? That, that doesn't make, wait, what? You know, and it just started you know, getting my mind going, thinking about like, you know, there, there are people out there who do this for a living because obviously Pegasus, you know, isn't real, but you know, someone somewhere created that. So fast forward a couple of years. Um, my stepfather is uh, really, really into film, collected a whole bunch of books, specifically uh, Starlog and, and a bunch of other um, uh, magazines, newspapers and books. And he had bought uh, in the mid eighties um, a book called ILM the first 10 years. And what was really fantastic about that book is that it takes you through not just the history of visual effects and specifically ILM's visual effects, but it takes you through each department, each division of the company. So, you know, matte painting or, you know, creature effects, you know, effects on screen, all that fun stuff, miniatures. And I kind of stole this book from him and I just read it cover to cover. I can't tell you how many times 
Uh, and when I moved out of my parents' house, I took that book with me. Uh, like I said, I stole it. Um, <laughs> and what's really great about that book is that so many people in that industry are still around. Um, and so over the years, whenever I would meet someone who you know worked, uh, you know, not only in the industry but was mentioned in that book. So, for example, one of my favorite uh, people that I've met over the years is uh, Michael Pongrazio. He was a matte painter at ILM for many, many years, painted some of the most iconic um, scenes you can imagine. I met him in 2003. Uh, I was working on uh, The Day After Tomorrow up in San Francisco at the Orphanage. And he was working on Hellboy, but he was also helping out a little bit on, on Day After. And I went into his office because he had asked me a question. I, I just It was easier just to go you know, into his office because you know, no COVID. Uh, and so I went in there and, and you know, was helping him uh, answer like a Photoshop question or something. And I noticed this painting uh, on his back wall of his office. And it was the six foot wide uh, glass painting that he did for the exterior of the Nepalese bar from Raiders of the Lost Ark, like wow. the the original in his office. And I was like, is that real? And he's like, well, yeah, I, I painted that. And I'm like, it's just in your office and you just happen to have this here. And so the the funny thing was, is that uh, we became uh, really fast friends and, and I helped him uh, kind of learn. Uh, some of the nuances of Photoshop, because again, he came from a, a painter uh, background and I don't presume to tell anyone how to paint, but I was able to show him like some of the tools. So anyway, every night uh, we would get lined up uh, in this basement hallway to have uh, uh, OT dinner. And anytime I would pass him in the hallway, uh, I would get down on my knees and I'd say, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. And he'd say, Mancus, you're embarrassing me. Get up. You know, and so, uh, but it was a, just a really fantastic experience and, and finally getting to meet, you know, the person who I literally read about as a kid, that was a really um, fantastic moment for me. So there are other people that I've worked with over the years um, that are, uh, that also signed my book. I mean, everyone from him to like, up to like Ed Catmull, uh, when I worked at Disney and I got a chance to meet him and he, he signed uh, that book as well. So that's probably one of my most uh, cherished possessions. So, so I you still have that book though, yeah. that original of one. Course. Wow. Oh yeah, I still have it. Yeah, like I said, I stole it from from my stepdad uh, back in the early '80s. I still have it today, and, and yeah, it's it's definitely one of my most uh, prized possessions. Um, even like for me, when I was a kid, when I saw uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, my absolute favorite shot of that film is the minecart, uh, you know, sequence. And at the very end of that, they come out and they're on this cliff face, right? And it's like you know, yep. water is like spraying out everywhere. There's this one shot. It's a matte painting where you see them coming out of that opening right and and you know you hear um i can't remember her name uh oh shoot what's the name of the woman oh man from the movie uh oh geez i haven't seen temple of doom it's usually the one i uh, i skip honestly <laughs> yeah well <laughs> it's been a while is, the thing is is that uh it's just for visual effects willie that's her name willie uh so you know willie screams you know and that's one of the reasons why spielberg had hired her uh, was because of her scream but anyway so you know, they're on the minecart chase. They, they come out, there's this cliff. But the thing is, ILM did the shot. What they did was they, they just took the camera and they just very subtly just kind of rocked it just a little bit. And it made it feel like a helicopter shot. And it gave the whole scene scale. Mm-hmm. And it absolutely blew my mind. And, and uh, Patricia Green was the map painter uh, for that particular scene. And um, uh, Michael Pongrazio had been kind of her mentor uh, back in those days. And so to get to work with both of them was absolutely mind blowing for me. So again, this is something that I've always wanted to do. Um, I didn't really know what it was that I wanted to do. So fast forward a little bit um, to when I was 18, 
And uh, my mom had actually told me that there was this article in the LA Times talking about this new visual effects uh, school called uh, Nomen. And so uh, we went down there, I checked it out, and you know, I met um, uh, Darren Crumwitty and Alex Alvarez. And you know, they showed me this um, uh, demo reel for uh, uh, Alias Wavefront's power animator. And um, several of the people there had worked on uh, The Fifth Element. And that was the most recent film that I had seen, you know, knowing like, okay, this is something that I definitely want to do. And, and so seeing these scenes, they explained to me in the school, like the people who worked on this movie will be your instructors. And it's like, oh, okay, wow, you know. Mm. So I took an, an intro class. It basically covered a little bit of everything in the computer graphics world, everything from, you know, modeling, texturing, a little bit of animation, um, you know, lighting, compositing. And I, what I found was what I loved the most was lighting. I really loved being able to control light and tell uh, a story visually uh, using you know, light and shadow. And, and so that became uh, kind of my focus very early on. Um, and because of that uh, school, I was able to get an internship uh, at a little game studio in Pasadena uh, where I, I kept learning power animator, but now I'm getting paid to learn as opposed to paying to learn. Um, and so, you know, I did uh, game cinematics for several years that I did uh, visual effects for many years and, um, I got a chance to work on some really cool movies, but yeah, I've, I've always wanted to do this my entire mm -hmm. life. And so being able to pursue that passion, um, you know, it's, it's kind of the opposite of what a lot of people assume, which is, you know, you, in a lot of these circumstances where people start their own business, it's because they're at a dead end soulless job. Right. And this yeah. is completely not that <laughs> I was absolutely <laughs> enamored with my work. I, I, even the, the most difficult project I've ever worked on or the most frustrating, it didn't matter. It, it was still to me, like, this is what I'm meant to do. Um, so I, I didn't start making chocolate because, Oh, I, Hey, I need, you know, some way out of this dead end job. It was more like, Hey, this is something that I enjoy and I can talk a little bit more about how we kind of fell into uh, that end of it. But um, I don't know if you wanted any more information on the uh, VFX side. Before sure. We did that. Well, well, I'd like to sort of, to just clarify, you know, for some of our listeners who might be uninitiated, right. What, what you're talking about with lighting is basically in a digital space, you know, doing the same thing that uh, somebody would do on a, on a real set. Correct. Is like, setting up lights and and making sure that say right the the lighting corresponds to what the actual you know the spaces that the physical actors were, would have been in correct that's part of it so there's there's two kind of uh different areas of focus within the visual effects industry you've got live action visual effects which is you know footage shot on uh, with a camera a digital camera whatever but it's real people maybe on a real set um and you've got uh, footage that you then have to kind of put them into or, you know, augment that scene. But then you also have animated features where 100% of the image is created in the computer. Lighting uh, basically works the same way uh, in both VFX, uh, live action VFX and animated features. The, the main difference is that um, when you're shooting real people, when you're filming real people and you have uh, kind of reference, you know, like, so for example, if someone's standing outside and the sun is coming from, say, screen left, obviously anything that you light is going to have to be kind of tethered to that. You can't really break that. You can't change that. Whereas in uh, computer animated uh, movies, like animated features, you can basically, it's a clean slate. You can create whatever you want. You can make any sort of lighting scenario from any direction that you want. It's really up to, you know, what the director wants and, and, uh, you know, the soups and things like that, uh, the supervisors, basically um, the 
the methodology is very similar. It's just one is very much tied to, okay, we need to, you know, match whatever was, was photographed that day. If it's a cloudy overcast day, you, you have to have, you know, cloudy overcast lighting. Whereas if it's animated, you can say, oh, I want this to be daytime, nighttime. It doesn't matter. We can basically right. create whatever we want. Uh, I'd love to also sort of take a step back because we, we zoomed from, you know, you discovering that, you know, your love for this industry in the theater when you were five to, hey, you're here. Uh, take me through maybe just just a little bit of your experiences as maybe a kid or, or a teenager or whatever. How how did you sort of hone that passion or, or, or were there some stumbling blocks along the way? Like, were there any moments where you thought, OK, well, maybe or, or how did you hone that focus? So I've always loved computers. I've always loved film and visual effects, you know, is basically the perfect marriage of those two things. And so when I was uh, probably about six years old, my parents bought me uh, an Apple computer and I taught myself basic programming with it. And originally I thought, well, maybe I'll be interested in, you know, coding. And I used to, you know, write my own games. And I had a subscription to, I think it was called Apple Magazine. And it was uh, specifically chunks of code that you could copy down and like, oh, if you want to do this sort of keyboard entry to do this or that, you know, here's the chunk of code that you could use to do that. And so um, I really kind of got involved on the programming side very early on, again, just with basics. So it's not like I'm doing anything super hardcore or anything, but it was just enough to kind of keep me really interested. And um, as I got older and I eventually got a PC, um, I kept going with with basic a little bit, but then I started getting more into the graphics side of things. So I remember um, at one point I got a program called uh, True Space 2, which I don't think anyone's heard of uh, in years, but um, it was a very basic 3D uh, program where basically you could do you know a little bit of modeling, a little bit of lighting. It was very, very basic. Um, but then also uh, playing around with uh, 3D Studio um, and then uh, Bryce, uh, which... It might be around still. I'm not really sure, but um, that's more of like a um, landscape um, uh, program, basically, just to kind of create different, uh, you know, exterior scenes. Uh, but it, it kind of got me used to the idea of operating in 3D space. Um, when I was a kid, uh, one of my favorite toys was uh, Lego, and I just spent every last penny that I had on Lego. And and what I think is really fantastic about Lego in relation to CG is that it gives you an idea of a three-dimensional object on a two-dimensional image, right? And so that basically, for me, I felt really helped me to understand, okay, if I'm looking at a two-dimensional image, understanding, you know, this is actually representational of a 3D image that you can tumble around and scale and things like that. And so that kind of, you know, had been part of my childhood. And so um, I started playing around with these programs when I was probably 13, 14 years old. So by the time... um, I left high school. I went to uh, City College. Um, I was taking some AutoCAD classes. I remember the very first 3D object I modeled was a styrofoam cup. Um, And, uh, you know, just just being really interested. I I knew I didn't want to be an architect. I knew I didn't want to really, I wasn't really interested in like schematics per se. It was definitely more on the 3D side. So while I was in City College, that's when my mom was like, hey, you know, there's this school. You should, this sounds Mm -hmm. like it's right up your alley. And that really jump-started my specific visual effects uh, pathway, if that makes sense. I see. I, I love hearing 
sort of your your experience of of your creative aspirations in the more technical sense. You know, I mentioned you know before we got the formal interview running that I had recently talked to a, a YouTuber who focuses on you know documentary style content, and he he seemed sort of taken aback at me interpreting a lot of what he does as creative because the way that he sees it is so technical that he doesn't look at it as creative. But, you know, I pointed out to him, it's like my, my brother's a poet and he's very much like an artist's artist. Like it is inspiration, pure creativity. Whereas I was a songwriter. And for me, it was like, I'm putting puzzles together. You know, it's, it's the same thing. I'm putting these Lego pieces together of like, Oh, well this melody or this rhythm goes correctly with this. Like it's putting these things together in a more technical or analytical way. So I, I really appreciate, you know, hearing that, that echo in our interview now. Yeah, for sure. And and now that I think about it, you know, uh, one of the things that my parents ended up getting when I was probably about, yeah, about five, six years old is they got a VHS camcorder, this giant thing that, you know, it was a shoulder mounted type thing. It was kind of ridiculous. But um, again, I kind of just stole it from my parents and I just kind of, you know, requisitioned it so that I could uh, shoot short films. And so what I would do a lot of the times was uh, I would take my Lego and I would recreate scenes for movies. So one of my favorite things that I did was um, I actually recreated part of the minecart chase sequence from Temple of Doom using Lego, aluminum foil for the, the interior of the cave. And then um, I was a pretty sickly kid, so I had a humidifier. And so the humidifier provided the steam, right? <laughs> so that plus a little bit of like red film, you know, I mean, I was able to kind of recreate these scenes. And it was, you know, very, very basic and simple. But, you know, I... I love the idea of being able to figure out how certain scenes were achieved. And again, in that ILM book, they actually take you through, you know, how they did the miniatures, how they had these tiny little cameras that they actually mounted to the mine carts, you know, and they did all this stop motion animation. It was crazy. And, and to me, it's like being able to kind of tear that apart and figure that out. Um, I, I kind of did that with film, but I also, you know, I would tear apart, you know, old um, appliances around the house that, you know, weren't working anymore. And sometimes I could get them fixed. And a lot of times I didn't, but I just wanted to see how things work. I can't tell you how many VHS uh, players I've torn apart or vacuum cleaners, <laughs> things like that. I just, I was completely obsessed with just understanding how things work. And so film was, was definitely the, the top uh, passion. And so, Again, just kind of like deconstructing certain scenes and, you know, um, it, the camera that I was using, I wish that I had had uh, a slightly better camera, but, you know, it's what we had. Uh, it didn't really have the capability of doing stop motion exactly, but you could because it's VHS. It, it doesn't quite work, but I was able to do, you know, little quick stutters. And so I could do some very rudimentary stop motion animation, um, mm. you know, so it's like uh my brother, my younger brother, once he was a little bit older, um, he and I would start, you know, shooting all these short films together. Um, and we would integrate, you know, miniatures and, you know, even some very simple matte paintings or whatever, you know, and just try to do obviously as much as we could in camera because I had no way of taking the VHS footage and, and doing anything with it. Um, so it was more of kind of a, from a practical standpoint, but again, you know, just movies have always been a, a really big passion of mine. And so just, you know, my whole childhood was just film. Do you, do you, do you have any of these anymore? You know, like, have you ever, have you ever, have, do you have any like home videos, you know, left over that you've, you've seen? I know my parents do. I know probably 10 or 12 years ago, it was actually around Thanksgiving. It was around this time of year, about uh, yeah, 10 or 12 years ago. And I remember we were at my parents' house and my wife made some comment about like, oh yeah, didn't David 
do this or that. And they, they actually found one of the tapes. <laughs> and uh, what we had done was um, my brother uh, was really into uh, dirt biking uh, as a teenager. And one of the short films that we filmed was um, kind of a send up of Apollo 13, where, um, you know, that's the only kind of helmet that he had. But we, you know, recreated the gantry opening sequence with, you know, um, really basic uh, text on it, you know, with the opening credits, things like that. And, and, uh, you know, doing a, a liftoff of, uh, of the Apollo, the Saturn five, you know, using, I think it was, uh, toilet paper rolls that had been spray painted or something like that. And everything was on strings. It was ridiculous. But, uh, my, I know that my parents had at least one or two of those short films. They might have others. My parents don't really throw anything away. So they, those all exist somewhere. Amazing. Amazing. That's, that's crazy. I, I would like to, you know, sort of roll us into now that we've covered some of your, you know, VFX experience. Let's move over to letterpress chocolate. And, and when I was uh, visiting the shop, you gave us sort of a brief overview of, of how you got into it. But for our, our listeners, I'd love to sort of hear that story again. And, and how, you know, letterpress went from just an interest to a, a you know, a real business. Sure. So, Basically, what happened was uh, my wife and I are both from Southern California. I had taken a job up in Northern California that put us about 45 minutes west of Napa Valley. So we didn't know the first thing about wine at all. Like we didn't know, you know, what the difference was between red wine and white wine or like any of this stuff. And so uh, I had some friends that were really into wine. And so they started taking us out uh, to Napa on the weekends and eventually we started finding wine that we like. Cause you know, at first for me anyway, I really didn't like any wine at all to me. It was just kind of this weird kind of like bitter thing. And either that, or it was like too sweet with like dessert wines. And so once we started finding wines that we liked, my wife and I, we started just kind of going off on our own and not every weekend, but maybe two or three times a month going out to Napa and just kind of understanding, you know, okay, if wine grapes are growing on, say, the sunny side of a hill versus the shady side, that's actually going to make a difference in the taste or, you know, the microclimate of like different soil types or whatever. And so we kind of cut our teeth on the idea that, you know, wine is this very complex, nuanced thing, you know, that that has all these different variables. And so we kind of had that, you know, kind of in our back pocket. And so what happened was, uh, fast forward to 2010, uh, we were on vacation in St. Lucia, um, and we weren't thinking about chocolate at all at this point it was just one of those things i don't even think i i liked dark chocolate uh, very much back then i think i was mainly mainly eating uh, uh milk chocolate but so we're, we're on this island and basically we just you know asked one of the locals to like kind of show us around um we didn't do one of those package deals where you're like you know everything's all included we just literally got an apartment somewhere for like two weeks and you know, just kind of bombed around the island so uh, we're out with this this guy who's taking us around, and we stopped on the side of the road for lunch, um, kind of off on this uh, side road, and we saw these really weird looking trees uh, across the street. And I said, "Well, what is that?" And he's like, "Well, those are those are chocolate trees." I said, "What do you mean chocolate trees?" He's like, "No, that's where chocolate comes from. That's cacao." And so he took us across the street. He had a machete with him, and so it's like normally when you follow you know someone into the jungle with a machete, that's not necessarily a good thing. But in this particular case. He took one of these football-sized like red pods, cut it off the tree, and cut it in half. And we saw inside there are these kind of white uh, seeds. And he's like, "You go ahead and take this and, and suck on it. Don't don't chew it, but just suck on it." So we we popped them in our mouth, and it didn't taste anything like chocolate. It kind of tasted like uh, lychee or grapefruit or something. And we even said that we're like, "Well, this doesn't taste anything like chocolate." And he's like, "Well, no, it has to be fermented." 
And so he took us a little bit further up the road um, to these um, uh, drying racks, this fermentary uh, up on this hillside. Uh, and that actually did smell a little bit like chocolate. And, and he was explaining how, you know, the, the beans, when you just put them in a big pile and you cover them up for a few days, you know, it actually starts to, to ferment because um, it's really sweet. There's this pulp on the outside of the bean and it actually ferments. It kind of turns into alcohol and cooks the bean. And, and I remember the first time I, I picked up a, a handful of cacao and I smelled it and it had a very faint chocolatey smell. It was much more floral than anything, mm. but, but I started understanding like, okay, you know, this is actually a little bit like wine. Like, like this is from a specific place and all these trees are different. And it turns out that where we were, was the Rabo estate. It's, it's like the longest single continuously operational cacao plantation anywhere in the world. It was established in like the 1740s and it's still around today. So we came back uh, to LA after that trip and we we're just like, oh, wow, you know, so chocolate's like wine. This is so cool. And so uh, we found a, uh, a cheese shop in LA uh, called Wally's and they used to have this uh, little building next to their wine shop called uh, the Cheese Box. And they had a huge selection of uh, what they call bean-to-bar chocolate. So the idea is that you're sourcing cacao from one specific place as opposed to blending a whole bunch of different origins together to say, okay, this is from Peru or this is from Tanzania or Ecuador or the Dominican Republic or wherever. And and just understanding that each of those origins has its own unique flavor profile. And so we went into the cheese box and, and we told them, hey, you know, we want to learn more about, you know, bean-to-bar chocolate. Where should we start? And um, one of the cheesemongers there said, um, oh, well, you should try this uh, porcelana bar from this company called Bonat uh, in France. And so uh, I think it was like $21 or something. And, and we were just kind of like in sticker shock, like $21 for a chocolate bar? Really? Uh, okay. You know, and so we got that and a couple of other bars. We, we brought them home. And uh, we kind of decided, okay, well, let's, you know, delved into this as though it was wine. Let's like, you know, we're not going to eat anything else. We're not going to have it as dessert. We're just going to eat it on its own. And we're going to really, you know, uh, investigate this and see like, is, does this live up to the hype? And so we, we took a bite and we're, we're trying the chocolate and I never tasted anything like it. It was just super creamy and complex and it had like a definitive beginning, middle and end, just like wine. And, and we're just like, wow, it was like a revelation to us. It was like, this is incredible. You, it's, it's exactly like wine in that, you know, you, that you have all these different regions and they have these different tastes. Um, and in the years since then, we've also learned that the additional uh, variable to that, of course, is the chocolate maker themselves, because you can take the exact same cacao from the exact same farm and give it to two or three different chocolate makers. And you would never know the, that it was the same cacao. And, right. and that we learned a little bit later, but that kind of got us started. So what happened was um, around 2010, 2011, um, we just started collecting, you know, little bits of chocolate here or there. And then um, I was working at Sony at the time and DreamWorks uh, was hiring and they said, hey, we want you to come and, and uh, join the team. And so I ended up going up to DreamWorks and um, I always had a, a whole bunch of chocolate at my desk. So I became known as Chocolate Dave. So if anyone ever wanted chocolate, you know, they knew that they could swing by my desk because I had more chocolate than I knew to do with because I would just break off a little chunk and just, you know, save the rest of it to, to share. Um, and so it got to the point where pretty much every week there was always someone at my desk pretty much all the time. And this is a an open floor plan with a bunch of like little, you know, shoulder height cubicles, right? So, you know, when people are hearing me talk about cacao or whatever, or, or the chocolate, it kind of got distracting. So I actually got called into HR and they said, look, you know, we, we really appreciate that, you know, you're, you're getting along really well with everyone, but you are totally becoming a, a huge distraction on your floor. So 
is there any way that you could do these tastings that you do, but doing it, you know, do it during your lunch break? I said, that's a great idea. I'm, I'm totally down with doing that. So uh, that actually turned into the DreamWorks Chocolate Society uh, that I founded with uh, uh, a couple of friends. And so uh, it actually got pretty hardcore. So right after lunch, every Monday, uh, we would get together in one of the conference rooms and, and it would be anywhere between 20 to 30 people. There were a couple of days where we had closer to 40. We had kind of a nice little following. And what we would do is we would just blind taste six different bars. Um, we wouldn't say what they were. We would just start, you know, ranking them. People had their favorites or their least favorites. And, and then after we did the tasting, we'd do the reveal. Okay, here's what you tasted today. Um, and it was really cool because uh, now we have all these people doing this after about a year or two. Um, people kind of cut their teeth on, you know, what does the best chocolate in the world taste like? And, you know, I started scouring the internet for like, you know, all these different brands and all these different companies and just, you know, getting to the point where it's like, okay, well, I know that I like, you know, the Dominican Republic and I, and I like the Dominican Republic cacao from these makers, right? Like, so, so starting to have favorites, um, uh, kind of early on. So around that time, um, one of my supervisors said, Hey, what was that really great Peruvian bar? Um, you brought it in like three or four weeks ago. And I was just like, Oh man, I don't even remember anymore. And she's like, well, why don't you start a blog? You should be writing all this down. You know, you should mm. be reviewing all this stuff. And I said, that's a great idea. So I, I came home and I told my wife Corey about it and she's like, okay, let's do it. So we, we started a blog called little Brown squares, which, um, hasn't been around in a while, but I mean, we had, Eventually, about uh, I think five thousand followers on Facebook. Um, I don't know if Instagram was quite a thing yet, but um, we would review. You know, we'd photograph and review uh, different chocolate bars. And after a while, chocolate companies just started sending us chocolate. You know, that mm. hey, we heard about your blog. We'd love to hear your thoughts. You know, and and I guess they liked our photography. And so, you know, we would do a full in depth, um, you know, tasting of each one. And then, you know, that led to us doing uh, interviews. So what happened was, uh, fast forward to 2013, uh, I got contacted by a magazine called Chocolate Connoisseur Magazine, which, you know, I don't know how many people have heard about it. It's obviously a very, you know, uh, niche um, uh, periodical. But um, they said, hey, you know, would you be interested in going to the Northwest Chocolate Festival in uh, Seattle and uh, doing a story for us? And I was like, yeah, sure. So uh, they sent us up there my wife and I, and, uh, we, we covered the show and we met a bunch of different chocolate makers. And one of them, um, this uh, chocolate maker in Hawaii called Madre chocolate, uh, they were about to do this thing called the cacao boot camp. So what it was, it was, it was a one week intensive where you fly over there and they, you know, can put you up or whatever, but then they, they take you through the entire process from like planting cacao trees to grafting to, you know, harvesting fermentation and actually making bean to bar chocolate, you know, the entire process from beginning to end. And so I went out there and, um, I had basically decided that you had an option of either staying in a hotel or, you know, staying on a cacao farm in a tent. And I don't know why, but I decided to stay in the tent and it ended up <laughs> raining every night. And so, yeah, that was, that was not really fun, but at least it kind of got me used to being out in the jungle a little bit, um, because sure. I was off uh, the grid. So anyway, I'm out there for a week. Uh, this is probably uh, February of, uh, I think, 2013. And so what happened was, um, you know, did the whole process, you know, learned about you know, the cacao. We actually uh, attended some lectures at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. 
Um, uh, and I think it was uh, Dr. Skip Bittenbender, who's like one of the top cacao fermentation experts in the world. Um, and uh, where I had also met uh, one of my buddies, his name's Dan O'Doherty. He's now uh, kind of taken over from Skip as one of the top fermentation uh, experts uh, out there. And uh, we've actually ended up working quite a bit in the years since. But the, the crazy thing is, so I do this class. And the thing is, is that when we, it actually came to making the chocolate, um, for whatever reason, I don't know why, but we weren't wearing gloves. And so I just got chocolate over my hands. It was getting into, you know, my, my knuckles, it was getting underneath my fingernails and it absolutely grossed me out. I, I was like, I don't like this. I don't like the mess. It's, it's really oily. It's greasy. It's, it's very hard to, to wash chocolate off uh, your hands. And so that kind of made me not want to get into chocolate making. I was like, I'm not interested in this. I, I'm more interested in, in the trees, the, uh, the ecology side of things. And I had remembered that uh, I, one of my old producers from when I worked at Disney years and years ago, uh, he's Guatemalan. And I remember that he said, you know, several years ago, I'm done with this industry. I'm going to go down to Guatemala with my family and I'm going to take over my, my father's plantation. It's like a, a hardwood uh, uh, agroforest system. So I, I remembered him, his name's Juan. And, and so I called up Juan. I'm like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about maybe, I don't know, maybe shooting a documentary on, on cacao or just learning a little bit more about it. Uh, what do you know about cacao? And he's like, dude, I'm growing it. I'm like, what do you mean you're growing it? He's like, I, I thought you, you know, had a hardwood farm. It's like, no, 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 those are the shade trees for the cacao. We're starting to plant and cultivate cacao on our farm. And I said, well, wow, are, are you looking for investors? And he's like, eh, I guess uh why don't you guys come on down and check it out so this is like early 2014 so my wife and i flew down to guatemala and uh he took us through uh the alta verapaz region of uh, the country and basically alta verapaz is kind of like the napa valley of cacao beautiful rolling hills tons of different types of cacao um each with their own different uh you know terroir i mean just really fantastic to explore that and so when uh, we finished up that trip and we went uh, over to the east coast of the country where we checked out uh, his particular plantation. We fell in love with it immediately. And so we ended up investing a little bit in it. I don't remember exactly how much land it translated to. It's like a, a few acres or something. But the idea is that we could plant whatever it is that we wanted to plant on that land hmm. and start cultivating it. So the idea eventually is that we're going to start making chocolate from our own trees. So we've done uh, a couple of small batches, but the idea is eventually we can start kind of scaling that up. Um, but at, what happened was we weren't even thinking about making chocolate at that point. It was still all about the trees. What had happened was I had gotten all these different samples of cacao from all over the, the countryside, and I brought them back to the U.S. And since I had made a couple of batches of, of chocolate in Hawaii, I at least understood the process. So I mean, literally, we were like, you know, roasting handfuls of beans. And, you know, once you're done roasting, you have to peel the, the shell off of each individual bean. And it took like an hour per ounce per person. So literally, my wife and I hunched over in our kitchen for hours at a time just to get like a pound of peeled beans, which we would then use a mortar and pestle and start grinding it down and maybe adding a little bit of sugar. And it was just so ridiculous and laborious. And then uh, I had read online somewhere that uh, you could use a hairdryer. Um, what you do is you just crush up all the beans and then just blow a hairdryer over it. And that'll blow all the shell away. Now, the thing is, when you do that, that's called winnowing. You're supposed to winnow outside. Um, but for whatever reason, I didn't do that. I did this at like <laughs> three o'clock in the morning um, in our kitchen. And let's just say, uh, my wife was still finding bits of shell, uh, a year or two later. 
um, <laughs> just in little nooks and crannies. I tried cleaning it up, but yeah, for those of you out there who want to try making chocolate at home, whatever you do, do not winnow with a hairdryer indoors. Don't do it. I, I, I feel like that's one of those it. moments. It's like, you know, you knock a glass off the table and you can see it falling and you know, it's going to shatter, but you can't catch. It. I feel like that, that was you in that moment, turning on the hairdryer, realizing what was about to happen. <laughs> Yeah. And, and just kind of, it's not that I didn't care. It's that I was just so determined to get this yeah. batch of cacao winnowed that I was like, eh, it's fine. I'll just clean it up later. But the thing is, is that those little bits of shelf, they just love getting stuck in between tile. <laughs> and, oh man, it was, it was brutal. Um, and I spent hours and hours cleaning and it obviously wasn't good enough because my wife kept finding shelf for a long time <laughs> after that. So basically what happened was we started off with a mortar and pestle and then I tried the hairdryer and then I'd poked around online and there's a website called chocolatealchemy.com and they sell a bunch of um, kind of hobbyist equipment for chocolate anything from like a little paint bucket based wet vac winnower to you know much bigger pieces of equipment but they also sold these like little um indian spice grinders uh, basically they're typically used to make uh, dosa but um they're basically, you know, two little stone wheels with a little stone base. It's like, I think it holds maybe a liter and a half of, of liquid. And, and so what you do is you throw the cacao beans without the shell. They're called the nibs. You throw the nibs in there. You let that grind down a little bit. It starts to liquefy. Then you add a little bit of sugar. And most people let those run for maybe a few hours, and that's kind of good enough. And what we found was that uh, because cacao is a fermented food, there's a lot of um, acetic acid left over from the fermentation process. You have to volatilize it. You have to blow that off. So what ends up happening is when when you don't do that, um, all cacao, it doesn't matter where you get it from, it kind of has this like sour cherry kind of note to it. And what you have to do is you have to blow that off uh, in a process called conching. If you, if you can do that, then you'll start really getting all the beautiful nuances between each origin. And so we learned very early on that, oh, you need to spend a lot more time. So rather than just grinding for, say, four or six hours, we would grind for 24, 48, 72, sometimes even longer. Then we'd add the sugar, let that grind out for a couple of days. Um, but, I mean, it would take uh, a week to make a batch or longer. But what we found was that that just kind of uh, really let the chocolate kind of open up. And, again, because I was doing you know the DreamWorks Chocolate Society – we were all tasting really fantastic chocolate every week. And so what I decided to do was start to sneak our, our chocolate into these tastings without telling anyone. And, you know, we wouldn't say, you know, what was what we just have everyone taste everything. And I remember someone saying, you know, Hey, um, I, I really couldn't stand number three today. That was just absolutely disgusting. What is that? And I said, well, uh, I, I made that. Um, so it, it wasn't that kind of stereotypical story where, you know, Hey, I was making cupcakes at home. My mom said it was the best cupcake she'd ever had in her life. And I knew then that I was going to make cupcakes for the rest of my life. This is totally not that story. Our story was like, okay, batch after batch after batch, just kind of like really trying to do everything we could to try to make better chocolate because the people tasting our chocolate knew what good chocolate was supposed to taste. Like. Um, when, specifically, sorry, just to, sorry. just to stop you quickly is, is yeah. when you were first taking your chocolate in, what was your instinct? Like, did, did you think it was good at that time? Or did you, did you have that same feeling about it, it was like, this could be better or, or this isn't good. What was your instinct at that time? Uh, it was a it was a very humbling process. I actually thought it tasted somewhat decent, and to see a whole room full of people kind of collectively 
you know, <laughs> turn their nose up at what you're doing. Like, yeah, this is totally not good. This is way too acidic. It's too astringent, you know, cause again, mm. people are used to tasting really good stuff. If, you know, if I had my mom try it or whatever, she'd be like, Oh, this is amazing. But you know, it was a better feedback loop for us uh, going to this group because we're not just tasting our chocolate. We're tasting our chocolate in conjunction with all these other bars at the same time. So we had a very high bar, so to speak, to, to, to hit, right? So I would say it took about six months, about six months after we started doing this. Um, I remember you know, someone said, hey, what was number four today? Uh, that was really good. And I said, well, I made that. And they're like, that's really good. Can I, can I buy a bar? And I was like, I have no idea how much to charge for a bar. We don't even have packaging at this point. What we were doing was mm. we were just taking a bunch of chocolate and putting it in a little plastic bag and, you know, breaking up pieces and handing that out. Um, and then it suddenly like, okay, well, people want to buy our chocolate. What do we do? And so uh, just because we didn't have anything else, we went out and we just used some aluminum foil with like a little sticky note on it. Uh, and I think back then we were even individually numbering our bars, like one of 15, two of 15. <laughs> it was, it was absolutely ridiculous. It was all handwritten. We weren't even printing anything back then. Wow. Um, and th- that was around the time we were like, okay, let's, let's come up with a name. And so what happened was my wife and I are both uh, docents at the international printing museum uh, in Carson. It's like the largest printing museum in the world. And kind of working there, we, we realized that, you know, there's a lot of similarities between, Letterpress printing and chocolate making, we say that they're both machine-assisted, handcrafted art, right? They both use molds, right? So the thing is, we've, we said, okay, letterpress printing, chocolate making, letterpress chocolate. So then that's when we came up with the name. Um, so that uh, Christmas uh, of 2014, that was our first uh, Christmas in business. And uh, we had come up with, you know, a very, very basic logo. Uh, with this plane on it, it's it's a little bit reminiscent of our current one, but um, much more rough. Um, and uh, we were literally going to uh, Office Depot and having them print um, uh, these uh, labels for us. You know, we would hand cut each one, you know, and then uh, glue them together. And I found this cool kind of glue that is kind of resealable. So you could like open it up, break off a piece, close it back up again. Um, and that actually continues today with our packaging where it's, it's all resealable, uh, because a lot of packaging, you have to tear it open. And we always hated that. Um, so again, because we're, you know, through the DreamWorks Chocolate Society, we weren't just trying a bunch of chocolate. We were also looking at everyone else's packaging. So we could kind of see, well, what do we like? What do we not like? Um, so it was kind of like a, a crash course, you know, kind of all the way around. And, um, it was great because all of a sudden we had an, uh, kind of a built-in audience at DreamWorks. I mean, it's a campus of like, you know, 1500 people. Everyone suddenly knows that we're making chocolate. So, you know, we sold out of everything, uh, that Christmas and that, I think at that point we were like, okay, this is a, a fun hobby, but maybe we can, you know, take this a little bit further. And so the next thing we knew, um, uh, you know how in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Richard Dreyfus, you know, he has that vision you know, about the devil's tower or whatever. And then like, he mm. basically throws his family out of his house or they run away from him as he's like building this crazy thing in his living room. And, you know, he kind of just sits back and is like, what am I doing with my life? It was a little bit like that. Like literally every room in our apartment had been converted <laughs> for chocolate production. Our, our, you know, uh, my office at home had been converted into like a packaging room. You know, we were storing 
uh, chocolate in our bedroom in um, ice coolers. You know, I mean, it was it was crazy. Wow. I eventually ended up buying this like seven foot tall uh, wine fridge that we started storing chocolate in. I bought uh, a little bread proofer that I'd lugged up two flights of stairs to warm the molds. I mean, it, it got really out of hand. And so uh, in 20, I think it was in 2015, um, LA Weekly had heard about what we were doing. And uh, they actually sent a reporter to our apartment and they they photographed stuff and they, they did an interview and all that. Um, and what happened was our landlord saw that. And it was in our lease. We didn't realize this, but you can't run a business out of uh, the apartment. And we didn't know that. And he's like, look, you know, I'm, I'm not going to evict you guys, but you got to get all this stuff out of here like now. Um, <laughs> so we, we had to shut everything down. You know, we weren't really sure what we were going to do. And at this point, um, we were operating under the um, uh, cottage food operations permit, which uh, L.A. County allows you to make uh, products out of your home kitchen. You have a health inspector come by. They give you the thumbs up and you can actually sell uh, that stuff at, you know, farmers markets and even in stores. Um, and so now all of a sudden we have wholesale accounts, right? So we went from that to like not being able to do anything. So we kind of uh, quickly scrambled to just try to find some space somewhere to, to make chocolate, to keep things going. So we started looking at like, commercial kitchens and the problem is most commercial kitchens are incredibly hot and humid and mm. chocolate. You, you have to temper chocolate at very specific ambient temperatures, ideally about 68 degrees Fahrenheit. And so if you're in a room that's like, you know, 80, 85 degrees, you're not going to be tempering chocolate. It's not going to happen. Um, so it was very tricky for us to try to find a space that would be appropriate for chocolate. The other problem is, is that when you rent space at a commercial kitchen, it's by the hour. And remember, we have these machines and they run 24 seven and they will run for days and days and days. And so we talked to a bunch of different places and they're like, well, I mean, yeah, maybe you can, we can let you leave this one machine on the corner of this table or something, but you know, someone could be coming in and, you know, cutting pork chops or something on that table. It's just, it was just one of those things where we're just like, okay, that's, that's not going to work for us. So uh, eventually we found this uh, bakery that had basically um, gone out of business and they had converted it into a shared kitchen, but only for baked goods. Uh, so there weren't any meat products or anything like that. And what was really great about them was that rather than renting by the hour, you rented a space by the month. And so you had your own little area and you could leave stuff plugged in. You could leave stuff lying around and you knew, okay, this is my space. Um, and so we moved into this uh, shared kitchen. We just had one little table. But the thing is, instead of it being a, a hobby where we're just doing this at home, now all of a sudden we're paying $2,000 a month in rent. So we really got to step this up. And, and right around that time, I was working, I had finished working at DreamWorks and I had gone back to Sony and, and Sony, uh, I had just wrapped up on a project and I said, you know, I'm going to kind of take a step back from, from computer graphics and I want to kind of focus on this whole chocolate thing and just see where this goes. Um, so ended up going full-time into chocolate um, around uh, 2016. And uh, what had happened was there were all these other people in the kitchen and there was all this drama. There were people like, you know, not storing food properly. There was one person who would go outside and smoke and then come back in and start kneading dough without washing her hands, just stuff like that. Mm. And we're just like, ew, you know, and, and here's the thing. And it's just kind of to tell uh, your listeners out there, most commercial kitchens are really, really gross. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we're very, very glad that, you know, uh, to be in a space now where we get to kind of control the entire environment. That's really what we needed because my wife, Corey, is 
absolutely the driving force of us being as clean as we are, which is why we're able to do tours because, hey, look, everything's clean. Mm. Um, but at the time when we're sharing this kitchen, you know, some people were cleaner than others. Um, but the thing is, again, there's just tons of drama. It was like, I mean, they could have filmed a reality TV show and there were <laughs> people like, oh, you're out to destroy my business. Hey, that was my account. You know, whatever. You know, it was just absolutely ridiculous. And so the owner kind of pulled me aside one day and she's like, look, I'm, I'm kind of done with all, do you want to just take over the lease? And I said, yeah, sure. And she's like, you're going to have to take over, you know, the responsibility of all these other people, but it seems like you guys are kind of the most, you know, far along as far as like, okay, you're, you're actually going to be an actual business as opposed to someone just making a cake here or there or whatever. Right. So, um, we took over the lease and we, you know, told everyone in the kitchen, Hey, we're going to be taking over just so everyone knows the goal for us is we want this to be our production area. So eventually after about a year or so, you guys are all going to have to find another place to work. Um, but we're letting you guys know this now so that you have plenty of time to like find another place over the next year. And so um, over the next like six, eight months, people started moving out and we started expanding. Um, and I realized, okay, well, we need to kind of reconfigure the, the bakery, the main area a little bit, uh, because chocolate needs uh, kind of three different types of environments you need to have kind of a, a a messy room where you're winnowing there's gonna be shell everywhere and that can be kind of ambient temperature you need to have a uh, a room where you're doing all the milling and that can be really hot you know it can be like 100 degrees in there or whatever but then you have to have your tempering area which needs to be 68 degrees um so we realized that what we needed to do was to kind of compartmentalize uh, the kitchen a little bit but it was gonna be like i think it was like twenty thousand dollars to do the remodeling or whatever and so um Sony reached out to me and they said, Hey, you know, we have this, this job, uh, do you want to take it? And so, uh, Corey and I talked about it and we're like, well, you know, this job is actually going to pay for our remodel. So let's do it. So what happened was, um, I was working basically from nine in the morning till about seven or eight o'clock at night. And then I would uh, leave Sony, come to the kitchen and we would temper chocolate bars, uh, until one or two o'clock in the morning. And we did this for eight months. Okay. Seven days a week. It was, you know, we didn't get much sleep. Um, our marriage survived, which was kind of uh, impressive. Uh, but yeah, that actually uh, kind of helped us uh, to be able to, you know, expand. And, and uh, actually around that same time, uh, we, I think I'd have been working at Sony for about six months on a project. And they said, Hey, we want you to help out uh, on this other show. And uh, I was like, well, that other show would actually help us pay for the uh, remodeling of the retail area. Um, and so I was like, all right, let's another three, four months. Let's just do it. And so I worked for a few more months and that paid for our uh, remodel of the uh, uh, retail area. So, you know, a lot of people wonder, well, you know, did you guys have investors? Did you have like, you know, angels or whatever, like helping you out with money? No, we completely financed this on our own. Uh, every penny of this uh, venture has just been from me and my wife. And so um, by this is, uh, gosh, I'd say September of 2017, uh, we had basically everything ready. And that's when we opened to the public. Uh, so again, I, I left visual effects and I went into chocolate making full time. Um, once we opened to the public, you know, uh, we've just been open ever since. And I actually hadn't worked on a film at all uh, since 2018. Um, until this last uh, summer when um, I was asked to help out on uh, the new Spider-Man movie. And again, it's like, well, it's the summertime. Eh, this will actually help us again for our next expansion. So yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> so I ended up doing uh, one more film. 
So I, I want to talk a little bit, you know, I, I do want to circle back to Spider-Man, but I would love to hear a little bit more about some of the things that, that I I really found unbelievable when, when, when I visited the factory. And first of all was the the variety of beans that you're using. You know, for such a small operation, you have a really wide, you know, selection of bars from, from all over the world, you know, all with different, you know, profiles. So So talk to me about maybe some of the behind the scenes of why you choose certain beans or, or what makes, what makes that interesting for you? I'd say it's um, a combination of having a real passion for each individual project that we work with, but also um, flavor obviously is going to be a huge uh, factor in what we do because ultimately, you know, you can have a really cool, sustainable project really great people but if the you know cacao doesn't taste that great then you know to us that's kind of the whole point you you want it to taste really good so i would say we we set out not to necessarily make like the best chocolate in the world or anything like that we set out basically to just try to see what was possible and just kind of being able to get access to really interesting cacao that maybe hasn't really been uh, utilized before. So that's, I, we didn't set out to do this, but we kind of ended up being a company where we get a lot of uh, stuff that's either exclusive or that hasn't really been uh, developed uh, into chocolate before. So for example, um, uh, my buddy, Dan O'Doherty, which I, uh, I mentioned him earlier, he's like one of the top cacao fermentation experts in the world. What he does is he goes around the world and he just explores different areas. He talks to different farmers and he doesn't charge them anything. What he does is he says, look, if, if this is something that people really like, then just give me a percentage of whatever you end up selling. So there's no upfront cost to the farmer. So what's really great is that um, he really likes our approach to chocolate because in his opinion, um, we do what's known as a very clean read on our cacao. And what that means is whatever flavors that you get, say, you know, the green banana notes from Tanzania or the caramel notes from Ukiali or whatever, it's, he really appreciates the fact that he can taste his fermentation work very cleanly in the finished chocolate that we make. So we don't over roast, we don't under roast, we're kind of right down the middle. So he likes to send us uh, samples from all these projects that he goes out and, and checks out. Now they're not all fantastic. Sometimes uh, we get stuff that's definitely more uh, a miss than a hit, but um, the plus side of that is that we get stuff that has some, in some cases never been turned into chocolate before, um, you know, either wild harvested stuff or stuff that he had just set up. So for example, um, he had come back from, uh, South America. He was in Peru and in Ecuador back in 2015. And he sent us a sample of each of those. And we fell in love with both of them. And uh, one of them, the Ecuador one is called Costa Esmeraldas. And uh, now they're probably one of the most uh, popular uh, cacao producers for uh, small batch bean to bar chocolate makers in the world. Um, they went from like, I think our, our first harvest from them was like 200 kilos. And now they're up to, I think a hundred metric tons a year, you know, and I'd like to say that we were part of, you know, kind of helping them, reach a wider audience and just you know, so that other people could see what these guys were capable of. So it wasn't so much, you know, for our customers, which, you know, they obviously enjoy our chocolate, but also other chocolate makers who are like, Oh, wow, this is really, I, we've never heard of this. Like, what is this? You know, and we're like, Oh, it's Costa Esmeraldas. And same thing in Peru, there's this project called Ukiali River Cacao. And uh, Dan went down there. He, he helped set up their 
uh, fermentation um, and uh, drying processes and all that. And again, we got a sample of it. We fell in love with it immediately. And, you know, this project was brand new. They were actually founded in 2015. So it was really cool to, to be able to get access to stuff that, you know, again, just no one's ever tasted before. So um, we, we kind of source from more popular origins. So for example, uh, Maya Mountain from Belize, I've been there many times. We went there first when we were down in Guatemala back in, uh, I think it was 2013. Um, and that's one of our most popular bars now. And that has kind of like a, a nice kind of like red berry note with a little bit of a, a peppery kind of finish. Um, and uh, just kind of being able to check out all these different places and just seeing, you know, what, what each one can do. But I would say it's, it's the curiosity of just seeing what's out there and just seeing what we can do with it. Um, and, uh, I think, I don't even know how many origins we make, but it's, I think we've got a couple dozen at this point and it's, it's more just like, uh, I find something that I like and I want to pursue it. And, um, in some cases it's kind of like a challenge. So for example, um, the best chocolate bar I've ever had in my life was, uh, back in, I think it was in 2014, a buddy of mine, um, his name's Colin. He doesn't make chocolate anymore, but he used to run a company called uh, Rogue Chocolatier in Massachusetts. And he made this bar from uh, Jamaican cacao, and it was from this uh, project called Bachelor's Hall Estate. And to this day, I think it was batch number five, absolute, hands down, best chocolate bar I've ever had in my life. And I was like, i got to get my hands on these beans. It's so good. Like, and uh, I found out that you know this farmer's name is Desmond. I got in touch with him, and he's like, I'm really sorry, but you know all this cacao is being sold to you know, this company in England or this company in Toronto or whatever. And I was like, dude, if there's anything I can do to, to get some of this cacao, that'd be amazing. So finally, um, the company in Toronto had actually shut down for a summer because they were like retooling their factory or something. I found out about that because they weren't buying any cacao. So I got on the phone with Des and I'm like, how much can I get? He's like, I can spare one metric ton. I said, I will take all of it. So we air freighted that in. Um, so we actually stuck the cacao bags on a plane flew it into LAX and uh, trucked it up to the factory. And that's one of my personal favorites because not only was it, were we able to uh, create a chocolate that I remember, you know, tasting several years ago that I thought was the best, but the irony is that we ended up, we found a little tiny piece of that original chocolate bar from, you know, 2015. And we actually liked our Jamaica bar more than that one. Mm -hmm. So, there's a, um, there's kind of a, an idea that it's not like, Oh, I consider myself a chocolate expert. It's not like I consider myself like this amazing chocolate maker or anything, but we really spent a lot of time really exploring each of the origins that we work with. And a lot of times the demand, uh, for them kind of sticks around, even if I'm kind of moved on to, you know, another origin are now like I'm, I'm super into um, this project that we're working with in Bolivia called Tranquilidad. And I'm like totally head over heels in love with these guys. Um, but the thing is, is that because now we have a distributor, you know, and we're in like a couple hundred stores around the world. And so, you know, that kind of leads us into rather than just kind of experimentally working on a, on a farm, you know, for like a year or two, and then kind of moving on to us saying, okay, well, people love this chocolate. So for example, Belize, you know, we've been making Belize for uh, eight years now, you know, and, and normally I'd say, well, I think we've kind of plumbed the depths of what was possible with that cacao, but 
because it's such a popular bar and it's in so many stores, we keep making it because the demand is there. So mm. it, it's, it's not just like, Oh, I love 30 different origins or whatever it is. It's like, no, we actually have orders yeah. for all these different origins. So we have to kind of keep all that in stock. So it's, it's become kind of unwieldy. So I think in the future, we're probably going to pare that down, honestly, and we'll do more like special, like limited releases instead of trying to maintain all these yeah. origins. It's just, it's, it's a little much. I'll, I'll be honest. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I, you know, we tried a bunch of the bars, obviously, and we bought a ton of them. And like, I was just struck by, they're all good. You know, it's, it's incredible, like what you've managed to accomplish with, with the huge diversity and that you have been able to keep it going in, in, you know, a relatively small kitchen space. So it's really impressive. I'd like to, you know, very quickly touch on the pope, the, the pulp of the, the uh, cacao, which blew my mind because I mean, I, I was very into chocolate, you know, I think around the time that you started to get into it as well. I mean, I feel like that was a hotbed for, for like the sort of artisan chocolate stuff or like when it really started to grow and I I was really into it for a while. And that was something that I had never even heard of, or nobody had really talked about, but you now pasteurize and sell cacao pulp and it, you're right. It does taste like uh, guava or, or, or grapefruit. Yeah, it's such a unique flavor versus chocolate. So how did that come about, that interest in in, in selling a product that I've, I haven't heard of anybody else doing? Yeah, so basically it all kind of ties back to when we were in St. Lucia and being able to taste the pulp from the seeds themselves inside the pods. And, you know, I've, I've since done that at, at many, many, many um, uh, cacao plantations since. So the main thing is, is that pulp is considered it, it, when you first put the cacao in the ferment boxes, most of that juice just drains away. It just goes into the ground. They don't do anything with it because it, it can spoil very quickly. So uh, we're working with a, a really cool project in Ecuador where they're actually um, capturing that juice and flash pasteurizing it at the farm uh, so that it's uh, safe for transport. And so then we were able to bring that in and then, you know, uh, sell it in these little uh, pouches. So ultimately there was actually um, a company a few years ago, I think it was called, oh gosh, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. Um, something called, oh, Repurposed Pod. It kind of had a, a weird name, but but they sold these little, almost like milk cartons of cacao pulp. And, and we thought that that was going to be like, this huge thing where like, you know, they were going to start getting in like all these stores. And so, you know, we started carrying it in the shop when we first opened in 2017 and uh, there were these, you know, the packaging was really cool. You know, it had all these like great certifications. It was organic certified, all this stuff. Um, but they, I don't know why, but they totally shut down. They went out of business. I'm not really sure what happened there. Um, so then we started sourcing uh, from this project uh, in Ecuador uh, directly. Um, and, you know, the advantage is, yes, we have that direct relationship. But the problem is, is that, you know, um, the packaging isn't exactly what we want. Um, so we're trying to figure out a way to kind of scale that up because uh, we've got a lot of stores and I was saying, you know, we would love to carry this. And we're just like, well, we, it's not really uh, built for like, you know, uh, transport or anything like that yet. So that's kind of one of the things that we have kind of planned for the future. Um, but the thing is, I wanted to share that experience of, of cracking up a fresh uh, cacao pod. So the way it works is that you can't transport whole pods very easily. You can do it uh, if they're frozen, but fro- frozen uh, shipping is extremely expensive. 
Um, so what ends up happening, that's why uh, cacao, you know, they, they take the pods, they crack them up, and they do all the fermentation and everything at origin. We don't do that here because uh, once you cure the beans, I mean, they're good for years and years and years. They don't really go bad because they're, they're cured, they're fermented, right? Um, whereas the pulp, um, if you flash pasteurize it, it's good for a little while, but um, what we would love to do ultimately is, you know, we'd love to be able to share the experience with our customers directly of being able to crack open a pot and, and tasting the pulp uh, fresh like that. But uh, it's just not realistic, um, you know, with uh, shipping and everything. So cacao pulp as a juice is kind of uh, the next best thing. So, yeah, we're, we're trying to figure out right now. Um, there's a couple different companies that are trying different things right now with like uh, bottling it or, one company even made it into like a cola, which was really huh. bizarre. Um, I don't even remember the, the name of those guys. Um, actually, what it, uh, it's got a really weird name. It's like Coxa. It's like X-O-C-A or something. It's got a really weird name. But it, they're trying to turn it into like the next Coca-Cola, basically. Wow. And so there's this there's this race around uh, the world right now of like everyone realizes this is the next big thing. It's just a matter of how do you bring it to the U S and there's just, yeah. you know, a couple of different ways of doing it. And, you know, with like uh, shelf, uh, you know, timelines and all that stuff. And it's, it's definitely a huge challenge. So we're going to see how that kind of shakes out over the next year or so, but it's definitely one of the things that we are kind of focusing on. Very cool. I, so I want to sort of close out our interview by circling back to, to the VFX conversation, because that was sort of the, the whole inspiration or the catalyst for us talking. Uh, and the story that my, my girlfriend told me was that, you know, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No go ahead. <laughs> so the story that my girlfriend told me was, uh, sort of a full circle thing for you in terms of like a kind of a dream project, right? What you're working on now with, with Spider-Man. Uh, so, so do you want to fill me in about that? Like why I took that job? Yes. Yeah. Why this specifically was sort of exciting. So basically what happened was when, uh, I was 24, I interviewed at, uh, image works. I actually want to back up real quick. So my first, my very first industry job in LA was develop was delivering film canisters uh, to visual effects studios uh, for this little post production house. Um, so I actually got a chance to go to like Rhythm and Hughes, Blue Sky VIFX, um, you know Fox, Sony, all these different places. And I remember uh, dropping out some film canisters. It was around the time that Sony was working on uh, Starship Troopers, and like someone had to sign for something or something like that. So they they took me inside and they took me down this hallway. And I remember looking at people's screens and seeing scenes that from the movie that that they were working on and i remember i was uh, i was 18 years old i i went outside and i looked up at the front of uh, the image works building and i said someday i'm going to work here this is where i want to work um and so fast forward to 2003 i interviewed for spider-man 2 and uh the polar express and uh ken Hahn, the visual effects supervisor at uh, Sony at the time, uh, did my interview for uh, Spider-Man 2. He looks at my demo reel, which is basically, a you know, back then a VHS tape, two minutes long of like all the different scenes from all the projects I'd worked on. And uh, he said, do you have anything better? <laughs> I was like, no. And he's like, yeah, no, th- this isn't good enough. And so uh, I was completely dejected. And, hmm. you know, I, I just felt like, wow, you know, I'm not good enough to work here. But Right after that, I interviewed uh, right down the hallway uh, for Polar Express. And the guy who uh, interviewed me for that was uh, Rob Brito, who's now like the creative president of 
Lucasfilm or something. I mean, really, really high up. Super sweet guy, one of the nicest people I've ever met. And he looked at my reel and he's like, oh, no, your, your stuff's great. I totally want to hire you. So I ended up getting hired on, on Polar Express. But so at the time, uh, all of the lighters were working on the third floor at the Imageworks building. And everyone around me was working on Spider-Man 2. And they're working on Doc Ock and these really cool scenes. And here I am working on elves, right? Uh, and I'm just like, I don't know. I just, it just, I really, 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 really wanted to work on Spider-Man. And just seeing these scenes, especially with Doc Ock, it just looks so cool. So what happened was over the summer, I wasn't planning on doing you know any more VFX or anything like that. But the thing is, because of the pandemic, a lot of visual effects artists are working from home. So what happened was uh, a buddy of mine who who works at Digital Domain, he's like, hey, you know, we need a lot of help on um, the Spider Man movie. I think this would be right up your alley. Would you like to help us out? It's just you know, it's a quick like eight week gig or whatever. And I was like, okay, it's summertime. It's usually not as insane as the, the wintertime for chocolates. So I'm like, and I said, it's remote, right? And he's like, no, it's totally remote. You work from home. I'm like, all right, cool. So I realized, well, wait a minute. I can work for the factory. I've got a Mac. I've got you know, a nice big screen. I can totally you know, work from the factory. So I, I'm pretty sure I'm the first visual effects artist uh, to work on a film from a chocolate factory. I'm definitely the first uh, chocolate maker to work uh, on a visual effects film. <laughs> but the point is, is that I did it from a chocolate factory. So what was great about that was, you know, like instead of taking like a five minute break to go and get like a cup of coffee or whatever, I could go and check on my machines or I could go and polish molds or I could, you know, during my lunch break or the dinner break, I could, you know, make chocolate bars. So we actually continued production and we never stopped. We kept going. And I got to give uh, my wife, Corey, uh, all the credit for that because uh, she really stepped up and, and took over a lot of the production work during the daytime until I could kind of help out at night. So um, I ended up working on Spider-Man a little bit longer than uh, the original contract was, I think. It ended in like late October and then it ended up uh, finishing up. I think my last day was uh, this past Saturday night, which was like, what, the twenty. 20th <laughs> so november 20th so almost a full month longer than they had originally told me and it's, it's it's been very very challenging the last few weeks because you know our our very large purchase orders are starting to come in from our distributor and you know all the stores they normally sell to are all starting to stock up so we're we're getting pretty low on inventory but um somehow we managed to swing that and uh having an employee helping us out like on the weekends really helps so we're we're right now we're closed monday through thursday we're open friday through sunday and so monday through thursday i can just work on the film from uh the factory and then uh friday and saturday i could work from home because you know i didn't want to have like just on the off chance that a customer like wanders into the office which they wouldn't but just in case it's like eh, i don't want <laughs> anyone accidentally see like, Hey, isn't that Spider-Man? What's that doing in a chocolate factory? Right. Yeah. So, um, so I had talked to DD about it and I said, look, you know, there's no possibility of the public coming in during the week cause we're closed. And then on the days that we're open, I'll work from home. And they said, Oh yeah, that's totally fine. Um, so that, that went off uh, well, but, uh, yeah, the thing is because of COVID that really kind of launched a lot of, uh, studios into the whole work from home method, which was not, previously uh, a possibility especially i mean i've worked at places where they're like well if you're going to work on a marvel film i mean you can't even have internet access it, it has yeah. to be super super strict but just because of the necessity to keep making the movies you know people are like okay you have to work from home and um i think it's actually really remarkable that uh several movies now from a lot of different studios i mean even pixar you know they've done several movies entirely from home now um it can be done 
you know, and Amazing. I think that that's really cool. And, and that is the only reason why I was able to do it because if I had to go into a studio these days, we're way too, I can't, I can't do it. We're way too busy. So being able to, to work from home or in this uh, case, you know, working from the factory, um, it allows me to be able to keep working on projects that I really want to uh, and be able to keep doing the chocolate as well. But yeah, I wanted to work on Spidey specifically because I wanted to work on Doc Ock. <laughs> so uh, that was like, I mean, literally the last 20 some odd years I've been waiting for this opportunity. So that to me was the the biggest reward and I had a really great time. Well, I mean, circumstances aside with, with COVID and everything, I'm, I'm very happy that you got the opportunity. And I mean, who would, who would ever have guessed that not only would it be Doc Ock, but it would be Alfred Molina again. Uh, so yeah, very, very happy for you. And I'm, I know the last few weeks have been absolutely crazy for you. So I'm extremely grateful that you took this time today to, uh, to chat with us. Um, thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me.